Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on November 29th, 2015, on the basis of Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. Albert Einstein once allegedly said that if he were given one hour to save the planet, he would spend the first 59 minutes carefully defining the problem, and just the last one attempting to resolve it. I have to confess one of the reasons I like that statement so much is because sometimes I can tend to be a bit of a procrastinator. And now when I procrastinate, I can simply reassure myself by saying, I'm just doing exactly what Albert Einstein would be doing right now. But of course, one of the other reasons I like that statement so much is because it expresses a very important truth, the importance of carefully defining a problem before trying to solve it. Let me give you an example. Back in 1959, there was this British businessman who had the dream that man could fly using only his own strength. And so he put out there the offer of a $2.5 million prize to the first person who could build a human-powered plane that would successfully cross the English Channel. Dozens of different teams of of engineers started working on this problem, and, and here's how the process sort of went. A team would come up with a great idea of what this plane should look like. They would spend months and months and months building that plane. They would roll it out onto some runway for a test flight. And then, of course, within minutes, that entire year's worth of work would go crashing into the ground. Lesson learned, they'd go back to the drawing board, but now it would take almost another full year for them to build the next great idea they had for this plane. And so 18 years went by, and still no one had claimed that $2.5 million prize. Then along came an American engineer by the name of Pat McGrady. And he wisely concluded that the real problem at hand was not figuring out how to make this human-powered plane. No, the real problem was in the process. And so before he even gave a single thought to what this plane really ought to look like, he devised a way to build an airplane in such a way that when it inevitably crashed into the ground, it could be rebuilt in hours rather than in months. Turns out he was really on to something. As I mentioned, almost two decades of time had passed, but from the time Pat McGrady started working on that project, it was a mere six months before he was taking that $2.5 million to the bank. On June 12, 1979, his plane, known as the Gossamer Albatross, successfully crossed the English Channel with pilot Brian Allen pedaling away in the cockpit. There's a picture of his plane. So let me ask, does life ever feel that way to you? Here's what I mean by that. I would assume that most of us in the room would consider ourselves to be fairly busy people. In fact, if there's anyone here today who wakes up each and every day and and just says to themselves, boy, what am I going to do with all of this wonderful free time that I have? Make sure you talk to me after church. I can probably figure out a few things. For the rest of us, life is busy, right? And if that's the case, 
I've got what might be some bad news for you. The next 26 days of your life are going to be even busier than normal, maybe even the busiest time of the entire year. And yet, if you're anything like me, sometimes it feels like in spite of all of that busyness, it's sort of like you're sitting on a stationary bike. Lots of work, lots of energy, lots of pedaling, but you're not really getting anywhere. So here's the question that God's Word leads us to consider this morning. If that is ever the case, is the issue really that we can't find some sort of solution? Or perhaps is the issue instead that we haven't successfully identified the problem? Back in Jesus' day, it it didn't seem like that was an issue. Because every single person in the country of Israel agreed that there was one big problem. Imagine if in this next election cycle, every single person in our country, from one coast to the other, in the blue states and the red states, in the cities and in the suburbs, from the baby boomers to the Gen Xers to the millennials, everyone in our nation agreed on the one specific issue that was most important to our country. It sure would make the voting process a whole lot easier, right? Well, that was the case in Jesus' day. Everyone agreed on the problem. The problem was the oppressive Roman government, an oppressive Roman government that needed to be overthrown. Thankfully for them, God had promised what they thought was the solution. God had promised this great and mighty deliverer to come down from heaven. In fact, in Jesus' day, they had a whole set of titles that they would use to refer to this deliverer, sort of like when we refer to a judge as your honor. They had this whole set of songs and sayings that they would sing and speak to to announce this deliverer's arrival. Sort of like how Hail to the Chief is always played when the president enters the room. They even had a whole set of actions, a whole set of rituals and routines that that they knew very well, that they would use to celebrate the victory that he would bring, sort of like a hometown team that gets a a citywide parade when they bring home the championship trophy. God's people were eagerly awaiting for this great and mighty deliverer, and they were convinced that he was going to overthrow the Romans and bring peace and prosperity back to Israel. All they had to do was wait. So let me ask, if you had been in that crowd, lining those streets as Jesus made his final journey to Jerusalem, if you had been in that crowd, would Jesus have lived up to your expectations? On the one hand, it seemed as though the hope that Jesus was this great deliverer was at an all-time high. And much of that was due to Jesus himself. You heard how very carefully and meticulously he arranged for this triumphal procession into Jerusalem. He's the one who planned it. He's the one who allowed the people to use all of those titles in reference to him. He allowed them to sing and shout their songs and their sayings as he passed by. He allowed them to wave those palm branches in tribute to his victory as he passed Jesus was very clearly claiming, I am the great deliverer. On the other hand, did you notice what he chose for transportation? He chose a donkey. Not some mighty war horse fit for a king. A lowly beast of burden suited only for an even lowlier servant to ride. Did you notice who was following, who he had with him? 
Not some vast army of well-trained soldiers, but just 12 men, unarmed, untrained, uneducated. So here's what was going on. Jesus was going into Jerusalem, the capital city, for the very last time. All of his enemies were there waiting for him. And on the one hand, Jesus was very deliberately saying, I am the great deliverer, essentially demanding that his enemies worship him. On the other hand, Jesus walked in completely defenseless, completely unarmed. As one Christian put it, he rode as roadkill. So if you were standing in that crowd, do you think Jesus would have lived up to your expectations? You know, in a lot of ways, I think that's a question that's still very important for us to ask ourselves today. Because I'm guessing there have been times in your life where it sort of felt as though you were waiting on Jesus for deliverance. In your mind, you have identified a specific problem that needs to be solved. Perhaps recently you got a surprising diagnosis back from the doctor. Perhaps there's been a lot of financial strain lately because your hours were cut back or because the list of people that you need to buy presents for this Christmas seems to be twice as long as it was last year. Perhaps there's a relationship that's broken, a relationship with a child or with a parent that you really hope can get fixed so that you can all enjoy Christmas dinner together. You've identified the problem, but it seems as though God isn't providing the right solution. It seems as though God isn't dealing with the situation in the way that you would expect an all-knowing and all-loving God to do. You know, maybe we can understand and maybe even sympathize with how the people of Israel ended up feeling about Jesus. The hopes were so high, so much hype, so many great expectations of Jesus, and yet in their minds, in the end, he turned out to be one giant disappointment. So again, we're back to that question that God's word confronts us with today. If that's ever been the case, if you've ever felt disappointed with God, is the issue really that God hasn't provided the right solution? Or instead is perhaps the issue that we haven't correctly identified the problem? In the case of the Israelites, that was sort of sadly ironic. You see, I'd mentioned all of those all of those titles that they had, all of those sayings and those songs that they used, all of those rituals that they followed to announce the arrival of their great deliverer. Well, one of those songs, one of those sayings, was the very thing that they shouted as Jesus rode by. Hosanna. Have you heard that word before? If it sort of sounds strangely familiar to you, I'll tell you why that's the case in just a second. But that word Hosanna is actually a combination of a couple different Hebrew words that means save us. Save us. You see, these routines, these rituals, these words that God's people Israel had that were passed down from generation to generation, they were teaching them to be ready for this great deliverer, but not someone who would simply deliver them from the Romans, someone who would deliver them from something far greater than that. Hosanna, save us. Turns out they had the right words all along, they just needed to pay a little bit closer attention to what they were saying. 
So friends, if you and I identify problems in our lives, it's not that those things aren't problems. If we're stressed out about financial concerns or our health or our relationships, it's not as though we shouldn't be concerned about those things. It's not as though we shouldn't be working for and praying for solutions to those problems. It's not as though it's wrong to have a list of problems that that really weigh heavily on us, and maybe we could even number them from greatest to least from 1 through 10. It's just that we should also realize that behind those problems stands what maybe we should call problem zero. The one giant capital P problem that really stands behind it all. The one problem that's sort of like a big boulder that's been dropped into an otherwise calm lake. The one problem of which everything else that goes on in our lives is really just a ripple from that giant boulder. Problem zero. We are a broken people and we live in a broken world. Any attempt to fix that problem falls flat on its face. Any human solution to that problem crashes and burns. And it's only when we realize that that we would ever say, Hosanna, save us. It's only when we've correctly identified problem zero that our our most earnest and heartfelt prayers to God would not be, give me this, or do that, or fix this, or stop that, but instead simply save us. It's only when we correctly identify the problem that God's solution begins to make perfect sense. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. If the real problem is our human inability, the the limitations of our human strength to fix the mess that we're in, then it makes perfect sense that the solution is God's weakness. If really the heart of our sin is that so often we take ourselves and we put ourselves in place of God, it makes perfect sense that the solution would be God putting himself in the place of us. If the problem really is our sin, then the only solution is God coming down and riding into Jerusalem as roadkill. Willingly weak, deliberately determined to die. The one and only solution to problem zero. In fact, that's also the answer to a question that maybe you've been wondering to yourself for the last few minutes. Why on earth are we talking about Palm Sunday at the beginning of Advent? Why are we talking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey when we're supposed to be thinking about getting ready for his birth, right? Well, the fact is that this episode, maybe more than any other that occurred during Jesus' life, is perfectly emblematic of exactly the kind of deliverer that he came to be. A deliverer who was willingly weak. A a deliverer who was deliberately determined to die. In fact, by talking about Palm Sunday today, we're not doing something that's new or different. We're actually doing something that's really, really old. For centuries and centuries, when Christians get together at the start of a new church year, at the beginning of Advent, they have talked about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it's because this episode is also perfectly emblematic 
of the way that Jesus still comes to us today and still delivers us from our sin. Not with a lot of might, not with a lot of majesty, not with a lot of flash and brilliance, but deliberately weak, willingly humble. He delivers us through his word and through his sacraments. You know, sometimes people sort of like to lob grenades at the pattern of worship that Christians have followed for centuries and centuries and the pattern of worship that we, for the most part, follow here at Good News. It's a pattern of worship where every year we go through these seasons where we start with Advent and then there's Christmas and Epiphany. It's a pattern of worship where we have our own rituals, our own songs, our own sayings that we go through again and again and again. Week after week, we confess our sins to God. We hear of His forgiveness. We meditate on God's Word. We speak time-tested statements of faith called creeds. We join in prayers. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some people would say that that repeated pattern of worship isn't all that exciting, maybe not all that entertaining. Maybe at times it can get a bit repetitive or even a bit dull. In response, I wouldn't argue with that. I wouldn't debate that. I would simply ask, is the issue really that this pattern of worship doesn't provide a specific solution? Or is the issue really that again, we haven't correctly identified the problem. You see, the pattern of worship that Christians have used for centuries isn't really intended to be all that exciting or entertaining. If those things happen on occasion, that's great, I suppose. It's really just by coincidence. Far more than that, this pattern of worship is meant to bring to us, to deliver to us, God's one and only solution to problem zero. A Savior who was willingly weak, who rode into Jerusalem as roadkill. In fact, in this pattern of worship, we have this song that we sing called, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in that song, there's actually the same prayer that the people spoke as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Save us. And as we gather here each week in God's house, around his word and around his sacraments, God answers that prayer. God delivers to us the one and only solution to our biggest problem. So it turns out we do, in fact, have the right words, just like the people of Israel did for all those years. And friends, as we begin another church year, as we look forward to the celebration of Christ's birth, my prayer for all of us is that we would continue to pay very close attention. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.